Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I also would bring it when I'm at the end of a deal. So a lot of my clients just love it. You know, they just love it. Like it's, it's pretty theatrical. Like, what's that? That's my saber. <laughs> if you don't sign, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to use my saber. It's like, who carries a saber? Like, well, I do. <laughs> hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with us today. You know, time is your most valuable and non-renewable resource. So thank you once again for your vote of confidence. I hope that you are enjoying our all-female lineup this month of March. And I am excited to bring you a conversation today with another phenomenal clean energy deal maker. But first, a few quick announcements and a note here at the beginning. I've been so honored these four and a half years since we started with your faithful patronage of Suncast every week. I was just checking our stats and absolutely floored and excited at the same time to see that this week Suncast podcast exceeded 200,000 all-time downloads. It's such an amazing honor to know that you care enough to listen that many times. I know I'm probably not talking only to my mom at this point. (laughs) So thank you, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for showing up. You inspire me, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to keep more content coming your way. Oh, hey, and did you check out or see in your feed that we finally started going live on LinkedIn? To my knowledge, you guys feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I may be the first person in renewables to have done a LinkedIn live. If not... I'd love to know who else. I'd like to actually do a live with that person. Hey, go check out my video, would you, with Suncast Guild member Austin Tabor on the three keys to founder freedom. If you're not familiar with the Guild, you can check that out. Click on become a member at mysuncast.com. And if you have an idea or guest or topic that you'd like to see covered on one of our LinkedIn lives, please do shoot me an email or DM me on LinkedIn. How meta is that? And speaking of live, mark your calendars for a special live webcast that I'll be hosting with my friend Tara Doyle of PVEL and a few other special guests on March 31st to commemorate the wrap-up of Women's History Month with a provocative roundtable discussion. Stay tuned for more info on that. Today's guest does not consider herself an entrepreneur, so I'll give her some other titles. Whether or not she would be self-referential, Mona Dejani is a deal machine. She's also the only woman ever to be head of energy and infrastructure of a major law firm and the only lawyer on the board for ACOR. That speaks volumes for her trustworthiness and her ability to reach new heights. In short, she's a trusted advisor and has been the steady hand in nearly a hundred billion, with a B, a hundred billion dollars worth of renewables transactions. 
In today's episode, Mona unpacks for us the three key elements of a good deal, a reliable pathway, risk mitigation, and the reality of the macro environment of the deal. We also unpack where deals get stuck, what Mona does to relax after all of the stress of a deal. And as you'll hear, she has such an infectious laugh. I like to think that this contributes greatly to the appeal of this self-proclaimed network-aholic. And at times, she appears superhuman, but rest assured, I can get Mona comfortable enough here to reveal her secrets to success and a life well-lived. I know that you'll love seeing the corners she's peering around. Head over to mysuncast.com if you are interested in any of the other 240 or so other founders and startup stories from the trenches of the clean tech battlefield. And while you're there, please consider joining the tribe so that you'll get weekly rays of sunshine dropped right into your inbox. Just parachuted in there, letting you know what you might have missed or what's still to come on Suncast. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we are back with another fantastic interview that I just know you're going to get a ton of value out of today. I am so honored by Lauren Glickman constantly bringing wonderful folks into my field of view. And Mona Dejani is no exception, and she's the exception in many rules. <laughs> she's a partner and global co-head of Energy and Infrastructure Projects team at Pillsbury. Pillsbury is a award-winning international law firm, well-known by many of you, so I don't need to go into the qualifications of Pillsbury. Mona has been a leader in the energy sector for more than 20 years, where she served as lead counsel in many of the most significant renewable energy transactions. And she's closed more than 500 transactions, structured nearly $100 billion in capital. Mona's got her hands in M&A, finance, IPOs, raising capital, and she's also the only woman ever to be head of energy and infrastructure of a major law firm. She happens to be the only lawyer on the board for the American Council on Renewable Energy, also known as ACOR. And she's a regular contributor and commentator for international news outlets like Financial Times, Politico, Washington Post, New York Times, Bloomberg, and the list goes on. Mona, welcome to Suncast. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a real treat to be talking with you today. Yeah, the treat is all mine. Gen genuinely grateful. <laughs> grateful to have you all on. It's not often that I get to meet people in person, um, but I always look forward to meeting guests when I have an opportunity. You know, hopefully we'll be up in New York. We'll get a chance to meet face to face. But before that, we're going to dive deep into sort of the practice of showing up in the world and becoming one of the most respected and renowned lawyers in, in our sector. So if it's all right with you, I have this vision in my mind. When I was in project development for Conergy, you know, I'd been in a lot of different business roles, but it was only then, uh, circa 2015, that it really occurred to me that lawyers uh, and legal counsel, I don't know if you guys prefer a specific term, but <laughs> lawyers are. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, lawyers are, are deal makers, right? Lawyers are, they're the glue that holds uh, the paper together, right? They're the paper clip. Like, mm -hmm. but, but, but apart from that, like I remember going very specifically, going into Mexico, going into Panama, and one day just realizing, oh, all of the 
really good connections that I have locally are because we chose this law firm or that law firm. And it turned out that the law firms that were representing us were creating massive value long before we actually created a valuable asset. You know, you've been sort of heralded as a deal maker in our industry. I mentioned, you know, nearly a hundred billion dollars worth of capital structures. You've got a whole lot of other stuff that you work on, but did you plan on being a deal maker, a lawyer, uh, you know, one of the best in the industry, or did it just kind of happen that that's the path that you came into? What was the catalyst for you that got you over to renewable energy specifically as a part of your practice? I'll just say this. I mean, I, like uh, most lawyers, I mean, I was uh, really good in school and uh, uh, it turned out I was uh, very good at writing and I didn't like blood. So, uh, (laughs) and so then, uh, uh, what I decided to do was to, uh, to, uh, maybe just go to law school. So I went to, but before that, I was a little bit shy about the commitment, you know, and what that took because it's graduate school, you know, here in the U.S. So I decided that it might be easier if I just went and um, just go to go to university. And I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, which is a It's, it's a Big Ten school, and they have one of the best engineering departments in the world and ended up learning that. And then I got a job at Enron in Houston, and this is when I was, you know, very young. And I was just, you know, working on um, energy deals, and I morphed more into the deal making, the corporate, putting the deals together, development, finance, you know, uh, corporate and securities, uh, decided that, um, you know, it was taking my lawyers too long to go to approve what I was trying to do. So I decided to just uh, go to school at night and um, I got an MBA and then eventually, and again, it was very easy for me. It wasn't hard. I went to uh, uh, law school, but uh, always with the idea that I really didn't want to work in a law firm. I really wanted to be a deal maker. I really wanted to be out there putting deals together, like what I was doing at Enron. So I uh, used my my skill in engineering and in business, and organically just grew in you know my career just kind of uh, you know took off and I'm very passionate about this, you know, about this space. And, and I, you know, and I just became uh, very, you know, just became very passionate about it. And it wasn't hard for me to seek uh, deals and helping people in this space, whether they're developers, you know, investors, bankers, governments, you know, it wasn't because I love it, you know, because I was loving it. So it wasn't it didn't seem like work for me. It was just something that I really uh, love to do. Having worked in, you know, at an EPC and at a developing company and even, at, you know, selling modules and trackers and all kinds of different uh, things, you know, deals take on uh, a life of their own. Uh, one of the things that I find fascinating about what you have shared with me about your career uh, I mean, I, I find myself asking, when did X happen, right? So you're Enron. Kind of unpack for me what the role was that you were that you were given at Enron, 
versus the role that you took at Enron. <laughs> and it, okay, I can, yeah. I can, I'm happy to expound <laughs> on that if you want. <laughs> right. No, no, I know, you know, and I think that's what happens a lot when you're working at uh, startups. And believe it or not, I mean, this was in the 90s, and I was uh, looking for something different. I wanted to get out of uh, Chicago, which is where I'm from. And I, you know, they're like, hey, we're looking for a junior person to assist on helping us put these deals to fruition. And it really helps that you understand all the technical aspects because you're an engineer and, you know, you can read the plans. And there's, you know, and when you look at a deal, a potential deal, a deal sheet or a letter of intent, you know, I could tell very quickly whether this is something that Enron should spend their money on or not. And what I loved about doing what I did when I was going in originally was I would just be basically looking at the technology and saying, yeah, this works or no, this doesn't and kind of peeling the onion and understanding uh, just the basics because a lot of the, the financing and the corporate, they don't understand the technology, the real estate. I mean, really the hard the hard assets, you know, really what makes it tick. So just looking at the, how much money is this going to make? You know, what's the IRR? What's the ARB spread? You know, so because like everything, when you're, uh, when you like something and you're good at it and other people higher than you recognize it, you get more and more responsibility. And that's what happened. I just got more and more responsibility. I could handle it. And that's what I do now, you know, with the, with my team and the junior people on my team that work with me is I give them as much responsibility as they can take. And I don't want to micromanage or macromanage for that sake, but it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, what your, what your aptitude is and whether this is something that you can do. The thing I'm wondering is, you know, which you answered, what role were you given versus what role did you take? And I mean, then that really points to the evolution because many, many people, come into a typecast, right? You're an engineer, Mona. And, and I, you know, and I'll state, I'll state the obvious things that sort of point to stand out to me, like in every energy company I've been in, like, I, I can't remember, uh, I can remember one and she was fantastic, but one female engineer. Okay. And it's certainly in the nineties, right? So the, the quality of female engineers today, and especially with technology has gone through the roof, but I went through engineering school in the nineties. I went through engineering school in the nineties. There was one professor that was female and one student in my class that was female. So you're coming into in, Enron with a double typecast, a female engineer. And I see, and I see you really take and the Yankee and Yankee, Yankee that's right. <laughs> coming out of Chicago to, to Houston. I see you taking the bull by the horns and I have to ask myself, like, what was in Mona's mindset that was directing her to where she wanted to spend her energy, despite what her peers or bosses were telling her she was supposed to be doing? Right. That's kind of what I'm wondering. OK, so, yeah, I just I am the type of person personally where if I'm not the best, then I don't do it. And that means if whatever it takes to be the best. So I went into this job. Everyone had very low expectations of me, including myself, by the way. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And then one success after another, and you get catapulted, you know, and that's what kind of happens. It's like an organic growth. 
you know, when you have really smart people around you and they are and they recognize that, that drive, that persistence. And I think that persistence is really key. It's one of the keys to success, I think. But if you're, you know, meaning that you just, you know, you're not going to give up easily. If you have a setback or a failure, you learn from it, you move on. So that's kind of what happened with me. And I started low, um, no expectations. And then I became more and more critical to uh, the deal team. What were some of the early things that you feel were the aha moments for you where you go, I think I understand this more than than they do or my peers, sort of the elements of the deal that you started to grab? Well, it's really funny. Um, today, I can talk to engineers and I can talk to bankers and I can talk to uh, other lawyers and I can tell within you know five minutes whether they know what they're talking about. Because when I look at a deal, I'm looking at it from a technical standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, from a financeability, bankability standpoint, and what are the what are the issues that are really worth spending some time on? And the most important is being very commercial. And what that means is People want all sides when they're when they're spending this kind of money to do you know these deals. They want to know that their deal is going to close. They want to know that there's deal certainty. They want to know that the people that are running the deal are not going to get hung up by pedantic small points. So that's how I look at things. I look at things you know all different ways. And you've got a sensitive BS yes. detector. <laughs> Exactly. I do. I do. I mean, and I don't, I don't call it all the time. Just if anyone's listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I hope someone's listening. That's sort of, hopefully there, there's someone listening and, and thank you for listening. Yes. I have, yes, uh, of course I didn't. Yes. Well, so if anyone's paying attention. That's, that's right. That's right. They're, they're paying Apologies attention now because go. that's quite all right. They're, they're paying attention now because of that wonderful laugh. I'm wondering from your perspective, and we're going to gloss over a bunch of things that are probably just you know, phenomenal and remarkable about the trajectory and growth of your career. Uh, and I apologize for those who are asking themselves questions that I'm missing right now. But the thing that comes to my mind as I'm thinking about the way your career trajectory uh, has blossomed is twofold. The first is when did you realize that you were no longer an engineer and that you needed additional skills. Uh, you mentioned that you got the MBA, the JD MBA. You did that through night school, which is super admirable. And then from there, how did you begin to migrate into the area of renewable energy? So there's kind of two steps. Okay. So when I was at uh, Enron, I uh, quickly realized that you know, that there's a lot of steps for approval for your deals. And so one of the steps was legal and they would never understand what we were doing. Mm -hmm. They couldn't understand it. And that is another kind of very big differentiator that I bring to the table today mm -hmm. is that I'm not like the average lawyer at all and any, by any means, uh, because I look at things multifaceted and there's, you know, dimensional, three-dimensional, four-dimensional. So I went to school and I went, I did my MBA at night. I got my actual law degree actually during the day. So I didn't, I actually took some time off. 
<laughs> and did that. But then what happened was I, uh, while I was working at Enron, I was doing a lot of power deals and it was fun. It was hilarious. You know, they were, I remember one time someone asking me like, Hey, uh, let's how, what, why don't we do a blackout? You know, is that against the law? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, uh, then, then, uh, I, there was a deal, like a first deal that I ever did in the 90s, and it was a wind power project that Enron was going to be, a subsidiary of Enron was going to uh, build. Today, you know, it's, it's like super old, but it's an icon, and it's in uh, Palm Springs. Do you know that one? Do you know yeah, the, the windmill yeah. one? Yeah, so that's super old, but um, that... That was one of the first deals in wind. I was the lawyer and uh, that represented Enron, and it was great. And it just, that's what sparked my intense passion for uh, renewable energy, clean energy, you know, global warming, climate change, all of that. Yeah. That's what started it. You got your JD while at Enron or you you went and then came back to Enron? I uh I actually uh, uh went and came back. And that, but I was only there for a short time because we started having some issues right away with the, you know, with the bankruptcy as you know. So I pretty much scooted out of there. And uh, worked. Uh, I got a job working at Kirkland and Ellis, which uh, did a lot of work for Enron. And uh, I focused on energy and, and private equity. So it just was a very easy move for me. Fantastic! That is really, uh, really fascinating. So that's how that was the segue into Kirkland. And your your very first deal as a lawyer was on a wind deal, a renewable energy deal. Did you always have, sometimes these types of deals can fall on our lap. Was it for you something where you self-selected and started to believe, okay, I think I can focus on clean energy or, or did over time you just sort of gravitate towards renewables? Is renewables, I guess also a, a, a parallel question is, is re renewables as a category something for you that has been a uh, like a foothold uh, or is it is simply is incorporated into a broader international legal uh, expertise that you you've you've crafted what happened with me was once i you know got started in wind and i compared that to conventional power and you know oil and gas and all the others i really wanted to stay and so I intentionally focused entirely, you know, and, and I would say primary, you know, you can't do it 100% all the time in this space on both a domestic and international level. And what that has given me is deep vertical understanding of the entire you know, supply chain and, you know, soup to nuts for project development, project finance, IPO, you know, everything. It also catapulted me on an international level, you know, and I can, I don't want to bore you, but I can, you know, um, some really super exciting times in this space on an international level and having amazing opportunities when you just just in the renewable space, 
Well, actually, yeah, let's let's go there. I had a question about that because it's not self-evident that someone who is a, a star in their own little uh, we'll call it in your box, right? If you're a star in your own universe, to become a star in the broader universe or the galaxy and to be seen <laughs> in that to be seen in that way, like it's not self-evident always to the star. But as you said, you kept you kept getting pulled into bigger and bigger deals. When did yeah. you get pulled into international deals? How did that work? And I mean, so many of us, myself included, have become involved in international work. And it's hard for me to start unpacking like, wow, when did I decide that I wanted an international right. element, you know, element to my to my toolbox? Right. Well, when you when you're when you become known as a deal maker and as someone that can really add value and close your deals and have, you know, and inspire confidence in all the counterparties. That's what the parties want. That's what, that's what the, that's what uh, they, they want to have that certainty. So I've started here in the States and now I'm, you know, I regularly, that's why I start my day very early you know, regularly travel. I have um, calls from Asia, the Middle East, Europe, on a, you know, South America on a daily basis, you know, and deals. In my space, in this space here, in renewables, it is, uh, it's small, believe it or not. And it's the same issues that you're dealing with. No matter if you're in the U.S. or if, you know, you're in Saudi Arabia, where I had other deals. So what happened, how I got there was I started here and then word of mouth, believe it or not, across the ponds. <laughs> and then and then one thing led to another and then it was just like a snowball. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, no, it completely makes sense. I feel like one of the things that maybe is worth saying out loud is my experience, and it could be different from yours, is that one of two things typically happens. Someone you worked with before gets a new job your current client, um, like, a, 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 I mean, like a specific person, an engineer, an HR person, et cetera, like they move on to another company, maybe that's an international company, et cetera. And they go, oh, we have this need. Mona did a kick-ass job for me. Let's go talk to Mona. Or, uh, and this in the latter is probably the most common, someone that you've been working for, a company, a developer, et cetera, begins to really grow in and build momentum, grow into themselves. And they take the jump into another market and they are more willing to go with someone they know rather than look for help in that new market. Mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. of what you said, the deal structure is relatively similar no matter where you go in mm -hmm. the world. So mm -hmm. do those resonate? Yeah, no, it does. It resonates. I mean, I had clients in the U.S. that went abroad. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then that proliferated. And then I had met more people mm, and met yeah. more companies while I was abroad. And then I was able to kind of build that expertise on mm -hmm. an international level. All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth, that's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery? You can now do that with DemandX, a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free 
demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how Extensible Energy's inexpensive demand deck software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait, there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. Do you spend time the way maybe, I don't want to call them out, but like our buddy Dino Barajas, who is probably one of the most well-traveled conference attendees. Do you spend time marketing at conferences and places like that? Or for you, is it more word of mouth from client to client in terms of like how you find new deals? You know, I certainly go to some conferences, but not all of them. Uh, I think it's, uh, for me at least, it's more, it's it's much easier when you, it's word of mouth and people just know you and your reputation and they want to come, they call me, you know, and say, hey, I have this, what do you think, can you help me, versus meeting people out of the blue at a conference. At the conference, it seems a little more random and it's much easier to have a meaningful relationship, professional relationship, when there's already some trust. And that could that trust could be there's you 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 know a mutual person or you worked on a deal together or your friends. Maybe you were on the other side of another deal at another point, you know, but you, you, there's some familiarity. I'm very active in ACOR and I'm, uh, like you said at the beginning, I mean, I was reelected to the board last year. I'm the only lawyer. It is a vote and it's, it is a, uh, that is, that is a trade association and association that I, you know, highly recommend for you know people in the u.s that really want to meet and it's remarkable with acor as well like the thing that i feel like sometimes people don't necessarily give credence um they think especially if you're stuck in sort of stuck i'll use in quotes you can't see me but in the solar industry specifically you think about sia and sepa but acor is the is the renewable energy industry right these are folks that are dealing with batteries and wind and hydro it's geothermal like it co- covers the entire gamut and there are some i mean you got like ormat one of the biggest developers in the world is a geo is a geothermal and a hydro and a uh, is a thermal and a geo developer right like to be able to be the only lawyer on the board for acor i just want to point that out like that as actually is a big deal and to be re- <laughs> to be revoted into the board is a huge vote of confidence. Well, thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It, it's, it's, it's great because the people on the board with me are all the, many of them are the top 
in their field, in their whatever, you know, in the particular. And, you know, and yes, it is. It's pan-renewable. It's um, technology agnostic as long as it's renewable. You mentioned a minute ago, you said that kind of no matter where you are, it's the same issues you're dealing with. And the way I wanted to couch this question is, what elements do you believe to be the truly core elements of getting a deal done? I think that the core elements are, number one, you need to have a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) So simple. (laughs) Meaning it can't be like, hey, we have all this hair, you know, all these bad points. We have, there's just so many obstacles at the beginning. That's number one. And, and this is not in any particular order. This is just, I'm doing the, the consciousness of thought right now. Okay? Sure, go for it. Yep. I'm, uh, you did not prepare. <laughs> yeah, she did not did. prepare for this question. So, <laughs> right. Absolutely not. So you have to have a good deal. You have to have uh, people on the deal where there's a certain element of trust. Like you can't put two people, two entities together, three entities or whatever, where there is really complete lack of trust. There needs to be, and, and I will tell you the biggest uh, one of the biggest issues I find that people minimize they don't realize this, is counterparty risk, meaning who are you dealing with on the other side? And even if, you know, you're selling something or you're buying something at the end of the day, you know, I'm a very big proponent in, first of all, understand what their motivation was for getting into doing the deal in the first place. Because again, that will go to understanding what the, how, what the counterparty risk is. Are they being forced to do it? You know, do they have an outside party forcing them to do it? Do they like each other? For those of us who don't deal day to day with counterparty risk, are you referring to the the, the, your sort of the diligence to better understand the likelihood that someone can and would walk away from a deal? Yeah. So what I'm talking about is, and, and yes, you're right. I mean, but on a, on a more simplified basis, it's, do you trust, is there some element of trust on the other side of your deal, whether they are a buyer, a seller, there's a supplier, they're, you know, a landowner, what, you know, anything. I mean, the energy, um, is there, what is there, uh, and the counterparty risk is, what is their likelihood that they're not gonna flake out? (laughs) And they're, because I have done, believe it or not, deals. I've done deals, believe it or not, whereby we have spent sometimes more than a year working on all the issues that need to get resolved to close. And then on the deal table, the party gets up and walks. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of money, not to mention all the transaction and opportunity costs. That's an expensive, that's an expensive mistake. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, you asked me about like, what are, what are the keys for successful deal? The number one after having a reason, you know, having a good deal is counterparty risk. That is huge. What yeah, else? Huge. Are, is there a short list for you? That's like you, you said early on when you were at Enron, 
you could sniff out a good deal better than anybody else. Why? What was yeah. it that you'd sense? It's so easy for me now. You know, I tell clients, just let me look at your term sheet. I won't even charge you. Just let me look at it. I could tell in 10 minutes. It's a sense. It's, it's all, it's, you know, it's not a, um, it's, it's not a cookie cutter. I mean, all the deals are different and it obviously depends on, you know, are we looking at solar? There's a lot of solar. Are we looking at wind? Are we looking at uh, biomass? Are we looking at geothermal, hydro, what? But um, you could look and there will be some telltale signs, whether it's technical or financial or like the expectations, you know, what they're looking for may be, you know, not in sync with reality. <laughs> And and this is what happens. I mean, I've been doing this like, you know, over 20 years. You just kind of, you can, I could just eyeball it and go, okay, here's your, here's what the problem is on this one. And that's just from a very high level, 30,000 feet. But I can tell, you know, we like, this is something we need to focus on and let's discuss it. Let's just have a meeting. I'll sort of synthesize this here. So what I heard is the, the core elements to a deal are a good deal good people and a, <laughs> and, a, and a good understanding of reality right and so if <laughs> if you if you have good people with a good deal who are yeah. trying to shove through a technology that's five years too soon or who are trying to do what they saw happen in california in iowa yeah right yeah then reality doesn't match Right. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying very course, broad terms, course, but yeah. yeah, that's the reality. I mean, if you, if you have a technology that hasn't been proven yet, that's not being realistic. That's not reality that you think that, you know, some you're going to get, you're going to get easy peasy financing or even a strategic partner or buyer. Well, let me you ask know, you, you'd be surprised. Let me ask you another way, another angle to this, uh, to this problem. You've seen, hundreds, thousands of deals by now. What's something that you're constantly surprised that your clients don't seem to understand about the nature of the deal? Or maybe said a different way, something that you always know you're going to have to step in and own. <laughs> well, one of them is, and I'm really surprised at <laughs> this one, is, you know, two people from two different companies meet, whether it's at a conference or at a meeting. And they get so excited about how each one would mutually help each other that they don't focus on the detail. They paint the deal very broad strokes. And it's the, you know, the, the saying devils in the details. It's all those details that really determine whether you have a viable deal or whether it's bankable, you know. And I'm surprised at how little it seems they know about the real specifics of the deal they're already at the negotiation table trying to come up with valuation and still are learning right. new nuance to the deal right so it's not just about the purchase price you know it's about timing it's about the warranties it's about credit support it's about here's a good one and this is a good one for solar developers I have seen so many like solar panels go everywhere, right? And it may not be that when, when you scratch the surface a little bit and ask the question like, well, uh, do you own or lease 
the rooftops <laughs> or do you uh, basically do you have site control and you'd be surprised how many do not yeah i would say mac yeah at a macro level you would be but i've asked this question enough that it doesn't surprise me at all i can tell you mona that the number one answer the number i was waiting for it frankly i was like when is she <laughs> gonna say site control because one of the questions i like to say is like where do deals get stuck like where do they just sort of start yeah. to unravel in my in my experience, um, I've seen you know site control, and the the other one is the right of way, right? It's not even someone to lock down site control, but they don't lock down right of way to their interconnection. Right, point. right, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, so and the easements. Yeah, the easement you, is the same. You know, yeah, easements. Yeah, right of way. Yeah. I always translating it from Spanish, which is servidumbre. <laughs> it's like wait, is it, <laughs> it's, it's basically the right of way, but easements is the right word. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's the same thing. Eastman's right away. It's the same. It's it's you're spot on as usual. Thank you. I'm I'm feeding off of your energy here, and uh, you are certainly the, the expert uh, on this. I'm I, maybe I'm just self congratulatory because I got one right. I was like, yes, I guessed one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, so you know, so it's the details. You know, it's the details. And what's also important, and it's a delicate balance, is, and this is where a lot of the lawyers get hung up, is on the details. Like, they, <laughs> they, they want to try to map out every single mitigant or possible blowout, you know, all the different scenarios. And that's fine, but don't get hung up. I mean, it should be, you know, don't get hung up on everything. And that's another another element of, you know, what I when I see this in other lawyers, it's like, you know, some of it is lack of experience, lack of expertise. And a lot of it is their nature, which is, you know, they're not they're not an engineer. They're not they're not like me. Ah. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, let's yeah. actually, well, so let's explore a little bit more about you and what makes you unique in the sure. world. Because if you're anything like uh, some other polymaths that I've had on the show, you, you know, the way that you show up uh, doesn't just stop at work. You, I know that you have a family and I know that you do enjoy uh, those brief moments away from the office. If you had a superpower that is not deal making that has to do with your perhaps social circle or the way that you show up for folks that are not inside of a deal. How have you expanded your horizons in that way? Well, when I was going through that period of my parents being so mad at me because I wanted to leave engineering, I took some time off and I went to Europe and I went to cooking school. <laughs> I went there because why? Because I was trying to get my head straight on what did I want to do with my life, you know, and this was before I had kids and family, but I went to cooking school. I, and I still do love cooking. And I, you know, worked in a restaurant. It was very difficult. It was um, it, just like being a deal maker lawyer like me it's it's more than it's it's not 9 to 5 you know you got to get up early we got to you know you got to do what it takes a lot of times your time is 
not your uh, your own. It's very much like it could be dictated by at least in the cooking, by um, you know what what was caught that morning for doing seafood and what types of you know vegetables there are and spices and herbs, you know. And so I so I'm so I still am very much into food and um, sadly I'm not uh, working. <laughs> I don't have a restaurant or working in one anymore. But I'm you know I love to cook and I love to have dinner parties and along the way um, I also became a sommelier and I became very good at wine. Wow. You guess I'm into France. <laughs> So yeah, so and, I'm guessing your dinner parties are are pairings. Yeah, so I have wine pairings, and the other thing I do is, which is interesting, and a lot of people might already know this that's listening, is that whenever I close a deal, depending on you know timing, but a lot of people know this. I mean, I we'll have a dinner party and I will be the one chefing it. I will make everything. No and way. Yeah, way. And then I also I want, have... I want an invite and, to the next one. That yeah, sounds fantastic. Yeah, you have to come. Yeah, you should. You should. I mean, people are like, you know, they just can't believe it when they see me wearing my, you know, wearing my apron and um, my white, you know, chef's apron. And then the other thing I do, which is, in, is still at these dinners, that it's a hoot for me is... I had my hand cut a lot, uh, many, many times learning how to do this, but this was many years ago now. And so now I'm like very good, but I have a very large saber. So I have this big saber and I put it in, a, it's in a case so I can travel with it. You know, I, of course I have to check it in. I have to check it in, you know, on, on airlines. That's what sucks, but I do have to check it in. I will bring that saber with me to the dinners and I will, uh, depending on where the dinners are and whether I'm the one that's chefing it or not, I will use it. I'll open the champagne bottles that way. And then I also would bring it when I'm at the end of a deal. So a lot of my clients just love it. You know, they just love it. Like it's, it's pretty theatrical. Like what's that? That's my saber. <laughs> if you don't sign, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to use my saber. It's like, who carries a saber? Like, well, I do. <laughs> that is so, so money. Yeah. So I'm so, I mean, and, I'll, and, and so this is just something I also mention to, you know, young people just starting out in their careers is, you you got to do what you love and you have to combine what you love. And that's what I did here. You know, I took the food and the wine, very different worlds. Believe it or not, I, I have represented a lot of wineries now. And um, I'm happy to say there's whenever you uh, go to California or to certain parts of France and Italy, I have always told them you need to have solar. And so there are some and I've worked on some where I've represented wineries with solar panels. And I think that's great. And uh, it's just because they believe so much in my enthusiasm for the technology and the energy, you know, for solar energy in particular. So, uh, so yeah, so I combined it all together. You know, I, I just combined my love of food and wine with, you know, the people that I've worked with who, uh, to close, uh, to close deals. So it's fun. I love that. It's really, I love really that. fun. I, I always say those who know me well, or have listened to this show often know, I say, be memorable. It's one of the things that will 
that will carry you through life. <laughs> and there's, an, I can't, I just love hearing how you, what a fun way to bring enjoyment to what you love to do and give it meaning and memorability. Are there any key lessons or takeaways for you from some of the more important or most important maybe mentors in your life or career? I didn't really have mentors with the exception of maybe my parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, don't get me on another topic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, about women in the legal profession. But, um, but I mean, I do have some, um, I think what's really important is as a leader, I think what, 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 and, and also looking to mentors to help you, I really believe in five characteristics. One is that you need to have a vision, you know, vision matters. And that is you need to, you know, believe in yourself and know what you, what makes you tick and um, what you see yourself going to be, you know, that vision matters and whether the people around you are going to support that or not. And that means, you know, you need to be able to clearly articulate what that long-term vision is communicate it and then hopefully, you know, your um, support system believes in you. And this is more as a leader now is to, you know, simplify your message, you know, and this may sound very irrelevant, but it's all about thinking and strategy. It's very important not to get, you know, to, to, to be able to explain your uh, message in plain language, you know, and, um, you know, and, and even though, you know, so, so that it conveys that you understand a very complex idea, but it's boiled down to, you know, something simple, you know, so it's actually much harder. I forgot who said this. Someone said this about, uh, it's a quote and it's a singer that I love. I thought you were going to do a Winston Churchill. I'd have written you a longer letter or a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> I think it was Pete Seeger. And he said something along the lines of, you know, anyone can make something complicated, but it takes a genius to make something simple. Mm. The third one is this, this, and I'll, I'll go through these quickly is oh, no. staying committed, staying mm -hmm. committed. You know, I kind of talked about this at the beginning. You need to care about the long term and be resilient and be able to, you know, pick yourself up when you have when you have failures and, you know, get get a thick skin to deal with criticism and don't waver at the first sign of trouble. I think critical is to know who your market is. You know, if you have a great product, but no one to market to, that's bad. If you have a huge market and a mediocre product, um, the market will pull that product out of you and you would have a really good chance of succeeding. Is there anything that you see coming on the pipe from a transaction perspective? Like what's on the landscape that maybe within your circles, you're seeing a common mechanism being utilized, but kind of like a PPA in wind. We didn't hear about it in solar until 2007, you know, eight. What do you see on the horizon there? I see a, I mean, on a, from a macro level, what I'm seeing a lot of is big institutions making strategic partnerships with other, whether it's developers or sponsors or other, other types of uh, companies on the value chain, 
And they're doing a lot of uh, value adds on a vertical level. One and one is not two, it's like 10. That's what I'm seeing. And then I'm seeing rinse and repeat. So the deals will just replicate themselves. They just do another project. There's a lot of companies out there that are buying outtake on an exclusive basis. There's a lot of companies where I'm seeing not joint ventures, I'm seeing quadruple ventures, where each company is bringing something to the table. I have one that will bring technology, and it's like a specific technology, you know, it's like a small component. So I'm seeing that. I'm seeing a lot more product, financial products out there that are, I never, I never thought for financing. And I see banks, private equity, insurance companies, pension funds, infrastructure funds, all, you know, coming to the table with different products so that the, to bring down some of that cost of capital. And I'm seeing a lot of interesting combinations where I never saw 10 years ago, never. Fascinating. Mona. I just know that your dinner parties must be uh, incredibly intriguing and interesting, and I can't wait to be able to attend one. Uh, you've kept me wrapped here for more than uh, for more than an hour, and, um, <laughs> and 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 for that, I'm truly I'm truly grateful. Um, well, uh, me too. I am so grateful for your time. This is great. You're very well known in this space. And so I'm just delighted to be able to speak to your listeners and have that opportunity. That's great. And and uh, for sure, you will come. I love it. Well, we'll <laughs> I would definitely love for you to come to the to a dinner party. Absolutely. We will make that happen. We will link, of course, as we always do, to your Twitter and LinkedIn accounts so that folks can find you. Mona Dejani is a partner and global co-head of Energy and Infrastructure Projects team at Pillsbury, world-renowned uh, leading legal firm. Mona, thank you for joining us on Suncast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nico. Thank you. Hey, all right. You're still here, and I am so thankful for that. I love the super dedicated outro listener that you are. You just never stop learning. Well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights that we talked about during this show from this and every other discussion, frankly, along with the social media links, the book recommendations, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. If you click on listen, that'll take you to the blog page. You can drill down to each one of those individual blogs. We list the books and all the goodies there. I recently added a big old button to the homepage. They'll take you straight there. Since I know that you're listening to the closing credits, I know that you are predisposed to helping improve yourself and to others. So I'd like to offer you two ways you can do that. If you'd take two minutes out of your life, I'd really appreciate it to give us your feedback. We have listed our listener survey, both in our emails as well as on the homepage. I do read all of these surveys and it gives us so much more information about how we can help the Suncast Tribe grow in your own personal and professional endeavors. Number two, shoot us an email with your own recommendations of guests or topics that we should be thinking about, including on Suncast or on our live webcasts and LinkedIn lives. I really would love your opinion, your feedback there. It makes a difference. And lastly, if you've considered reaching out to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, I do have one coaching spot opening up. So hurry on over and click on the work with me button at mysuncast.com to fill out a simple application and schedule a time to have a chat about that. And of course, next week you can expect a couple more 
wonderful female leaders coming into your inbox, into your earbuds. We've got Rosanna Francescata from Clean Coalition talking about microgrids. And then we've also got my good friend, Kendra Hubbard. Long time coming and she will be featured on Suncast talking about her journey to the role and work that she plays now, uh, both as a, a national salesperson as well as a board member for SIA. Can't wait for you to hear that story. Remember, you are what you listen to, Solar Warrior. Thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.